in him, that is, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. This is the second in our series on forgiveness. And this morning I'm going to focus primarily on verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. As I said last Sunday, there's nothing you and I need any more than forgiveness, nothing more than a mediator and a savior. Sin has separated us from God, who is life itself. The wages of sin is death, and death is separation from God. Without forgiveness, all is lost, we're lost, and we're lost forever. Moreover, since we're called upon to grant forgiveness to one another in the likeness of Christ's forgiveness of us, then we must comprehend the measure of that forgiveness, the manner and the manifestation of that forgiveness to which we are called to emulate. What sacrifice is required for us to grant forgiveness to another person? How do we forgive and what does that forgiveness look like? Redemption through the blood of Jesus involves the forgiveness of our sins. No one can say that this subject is not practical or that somehow it is too theological or philosophical. It is rather the of the utmost importance to every last one of us because this involves everyday life and sin is a big part of everyday life. There's no more painful bondage than unforgiven sin. The slime of the serpent is on all of us, and it is always just ahead of us. As a thing of the past, our sins cannot simply be forgiven. God doesn't simply look the other way. The world tries to redefine sin or shift the blame of sin to others. We are all victims of sin, the sins of others which we try, which we try to use to excuse our sin. I only sin because he sinned or she sinned. As a thing of the past, again, our sins can't simply be forgotten. As a, as a matter of the present affliction, that can't be ignored either. We are engaged in a constant battle within and without in regard to sin. There is never a moment when we don't feel its pressure, its weight. As I mentioned this morning, Sigmund Freud recognized that guilt was man's fundamental problem. If we could just get rid of that, we'd all be happy. 
We could do whatever we like and never feel bad about it at all. And that's really kind of the world we live in now. Live and let live. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. And not only will I let you do what you want to do, and not only do I think you should let me do what I want to do, you you should approve of what I do, and I will approve of what you do. We'll all just let everybody be their own God, do their own thing, and then, of course, we'll all be happy, right? Wouldn't that fix it? In addition, sin is also a danger that is still ahead of us. It is a sheer cliff on one side and quicksand on the other. It is always around us, our sins and the sins of others. How and where can we escape from its presence? Unless I can escape from myself and the world, then I cannot escape from sin. Nothing can be more practical than the doctrine which deals with sin and, more importantly, its removal. No news could be more pleasant than the announcement that my sins have been remitted or taken away. The very sound of the words forgiveness of sins refreshes our hearts because sin is discord, conflict, and forgiveness brings harmony. The sound of free grace is a beautiful and a consoling thing. Now, forgiveness is one of the articles of our creed. We say it each Sunday in the Nicene Creed, where we say we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness must be a substantial and central thing in your lives. Some of you, though, are still walking around embittered, uh, still feeling guilty um, by the sins of uh, embittered by the sins of others and burdened by the guilt of your own sins. And again, I say that speak knowing that I'm speaking mostly to believers here today, but we too forget. We don't believe oftentimes. We lay that aside and we pick up our sin, the sins that Jesus said he washed away, we pick them up again. We think we're special. We think he really can't do what he says he does. And there are at least two kinds of people that express a lack of faith in forgiven sin. First, there are those who have never felt that they are really all that sinful because they're in denial or they minimize their own sins. They're like that Pharisee who stood and prayed thus with himself. I think that's an interesting phrase, the way the Bible puts that. Apparently God wasn't hearing it. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, they're really bad. Their sins are, are really serious sins, not like my sins. You know, they're extortioners and they're unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. But me, I go to church every week. I fast. Twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not that bad. Or as Jesus asked in Matthew 6, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your eye. Compared to everyone around them, They're squeaky clean. 
So how can the one who doesn't believe they are sick ever think they need a remedy? They might confess the creed. Some of you just did do it every Sunday, and you're going to do it again today. You've, uh, you do the liturgy every week. You mouth the words. You sing the songs. But they really, in their hearts, think it's a fiction. Or at least it doesn't really pertain to them. If sin isn't a terrible fact to you, then pardon will never be any more than words that are mumbled each Sunday. If I were to hear about a cure for liver cancer, it came on the news, a great discovery, we now have a cure for liver cancer, I would consider that to be pretty good news as I move from the living room toward the kitchen. But if I had been diagnosed with liver cancer, that same pretty good news suddenly becomes very good news. And I become very urgent and diligent to make sure I obtain it. Where can I get that? How quick can I get that? Second, some don't believe in forgiveness who don't know the guilt of sin, but yet, or excuse me, who do know the guilt of sin, but are yet unable to believe that Jesus could actually forgive their sins. When Luther was greatly distressed under the conviction of his guilt, an old monk said to him, Did you not say this morning in the creed, I believe in the remission of sins? And Luther, like many others, had repeated those words, but had never grasped their meaning. So I admonish you this morning, don't simply sit here acting like believers. If you really believe in sin, believe also in his pardon. Part of the reason you find it so hard to forgive others is that you have never felt the joy of having been set free from your own sins. How could you have that experience and not want to extend it to others who've sinned against you? Now, according to our text, the forgiveness of our sins is a matter of grace. And yet it's connected with the price that is paid by the Redeemer. The fact of Christ having paid a price, having satisfied justice, does not remove the pardon of sin out of the realm of pure grace. Ill-deserved favor. Just because justice is satisfied, we cannot say that mercy is not involved. The very giving of Jesus Christ, by whom justice was satisfied, was an act of free grace on the part of God. We stole from God, we had a debt, and Jesus came, and in, in satisfying justice, he paid the debt off. He paid our debt. And therefore, we too should be eager to extend grace to those who have sinned against us. Real forgiveness comes fast and full. It doesn't take weeks and months and years and do this and do that. It can be instantaneous. That's the nature of grace. Immediately, Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross, Assuredly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, the giving of the pardon which comes through Jesus Christ is a matter of absolute grace and is in no way something that was owed to you or me. 
When we think of our Lord's satisfaction, which he made to justice, we should also, we shouldn't think that justice has eclipsed mercy. On the other hand, when we think of God's grace in pardoning sin, we shouldn't imagine that mercy has a blind eye to justice. This is God's perfect plan, how he does both, satisfy justice and extend mercy. Both justice and mercy are demonstrated by our Savior. Our debt was paid, and it was paid by him. And when we forgive others their debts, that means we are willingly and graciously paying their debt. Now, here's where I think it really gets exciting, the measure of forgiveness. Where does it get its value? How can Jesus forgive my sins, much less all of your sins, too? All uh, in it, it all, all sin is a form of robbery and theft of some sort. I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me, and I'm taking it from someone else, and as a result, there's damage done. Therefore... When forgiveness is given, it is at the expense of the one who was stolen from or offended. It's only by their sacrifice, their giving or their forgiving, that the relationship can be restored. Again, it's always a matter of grace, undeserved or better, ill-deserved. You actually not only don't deserve it, it wasn't like you were just walking down the street and I gave you something. No, you had just burned my house down. And now I'm going to forgive you and say you owe me nothing. I'll pay for the house. I'll do it. Well, don't I need to do something? No, you can't. You don't have any money. You can't, you can't do this. I'll have to do it. I get to do it. Now, just in case there's someone here or several who feel burdened by your past or oppressed by your sins, I have some important information for you. I have some real promise and some real hope. We should consider that the measure of forgiveness is in this text, in verse 7, is the riches of God's grace. It's important to note that it's not the character of the offender, which is the measure of mercy, but the character of the one who is offended. In other words, the forgiveness to be hoped for is not measured by you, or what you are, but rather by God and what he is. The words from the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, can and should be sung by every sinner. If you ever think that your sins are somehow not quite as offensive as that other guy's sins, then you still have a very low view of God's holiness and his riches, And you have too high a view of your sins. So pardon becomes likely or unlikely, easy or difficult, not so much according to the offense, but according to the character of the person who was offended. One person will forgive a serious wrong, while another person won't overlook even the slightest offense. And so if you hang on to offenses, then that speaks more to your character or lack thereof than it does to the offender. You want to keep score, but thankfully when God forgives, the whole debt is canceled and he keeps his word. Spurgeon offers this example from English history. I think this is a pretty powerful uh, description. He's uh, speaking of um, Richard. 
King Richard. John had most villainously treated his brother Richard in his absence. Uh, was it likely that when he of the lion's heart, Richard the lion-hearted, came home, he would pass over his brother's grievous offenses? If you look at John, villain that he was, it was most unlikely that he should be forgiven. But then if you consider the brave, high-souled Richard, the very flower of chivalry, you expect a generous deed. Based as John, base as John was, he was likely to be forgiven because Richard was so free of heart. And accordingly, pardon was right royally given by the great-hearted monarch. Had John been only half as guilty, if his brother Richard had been like himself, he would have made him lay his neck on the block. If John had been Richard, and Richard had been John, no matter how small the offense, there would have been no likelihood of pardon at all. So it is in all matters of transgression and pardon You must take the offense somewhat into account, it is true, but not one half so much as the character of the person who has been offended. With whom are you dealing? You have offended, but who is the person that you've offended? Is it one whose anger is quickly aroused? No, the Lord is long-suffering and exceedingly patient. He is one, is he one who is hard to satisfy and not easily persuaded to forgive? The Psalms declare his mercy endures forever. If the pardon were to be according to your character, you might never be pardoned at all. If God was like you, if he's like me, you might not ever be pardoned. If it were measured, uh, if it be, it was to be measured according to your offense, you'd never be forgiven. But since the probability of pardon lies in the character of God, therefore take heart, there is hope even for you. So come to the Father and say, Father, forgive me, I have sinned. Look to the face of God and see that He is ready to forgive. Do you remember that the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave himself for the church? The measure or value of forgiveness then lies in the richness of divine grace, and this should encourage each of us sinners to expect mercy. The forgiveness of sins is according to the riches of his grace. Now, there are wrong conceptions of God. Sometimes we have wrong conceptions of God. We think he's harsh. And that he's hard and we can't feel that he can possibly pass over this or that sin. We think that his grace is not greater than all of our sins. Or our ideas ideas of God's mercy are narrow because we think he's like us. But he has riches of grace that surpass all the wealth that we could imagine. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? The measure of mercy then is not in our puny conceptions of God, 
but God as he really is and that as he has revealed himself to be in Scripture, come to God in Christ as the one who is able with the glance of his eye to make your sins disappear like sun on a Nacogdoches snow. If the measure of mercy is according to the riches of his grace, then there is no limit to the amount of sins he can forgive. Nobody can measure the greatness of the guilt of a single sin. People talk of little sins, but really there's no such thing because the least rebellion against a morally perfect God is a great evil. Yes, there are degrees of sinning, and one offense may be greater than another, and one man's offense may be far worse than those of his neighbors. So if there's someone who has heaped up sins, who has committed crimes in a way that we could hardly speak of them, committed them again and again until the amount of his sins has become incalculable, nevertheless, this does not render his forgiveness impossible. You haven't gone beyond the power of God to pardon you, for the measure of his forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. If you seek mercy, whoever you are, you'll have it if you trust in Jesus Christ. No limits. The reach of God's forgiveness knows no time limit. Our text doesn't say there's forgiveness of sins according to such and such a time of life, but rather it says it's according to the riches of his grace. It is a blessed thing to come to God when you're young. In fact, some of you have plugged your ears and you refuse to receive his forgiving grace. You know better. You're going to do it your way. You insist, you insist on self-destruction. But if gray hairs are covering your head, don't think that the forgiveness of your sins is impossible. If you'll come and put your trust in Christ, all your sins shall be cast as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. You'll be like a newborn child, for Christ makes all things new according to the riches of his grace. Perhaps you have dug a deep, deep pit and you feel hopeless. But the marvelous grace of our loving Lord exceeds all of our sins and our guilt because it's grace that is greater than all our sin. And it's greater than all our sin because it is drawn from the riches of his grace. He has infinite grace. Another point, if pardon is according to the riches of his grace, then it's not according to the result of the sorrow which has been felt by the sinner. Sometimes people have the idea that we have to pass through a period of deep remorse before we can expect to be accepted with God. Of course, there must be sorrow for sin in every true believer, and there will be, but you'll never hate sin as much as you do when you know that God has forgiven you. Have you ever had that thought, I'm so afraid that I can never be forgiven? Well, you have no right to entertain such a fear that would be a claim that God hasn't told the truth and that he doesn't have what's needed to cover your sins. When God sent his dear son 
to be the propitiation for our sin. It's not, it, it's not humility. It is pride that makes someone say, I don't think he can do that. The Lord himself calls you to come and trust his son. There's no reason why anyone should be in the dark because the sun has now risen. Your business as a guilty sinner is to believe that the mercy that mercy has been dealt out by God to sinners, not according to their despair and remorse, but according to the riches of his grace. Where God has commanded uh, where has God commanded us to despair? But he has commanded us to believe. The world has great confidence and faith in psychologists and psychiatrists and counseling, and I'm certainly not saying there are no good things there. However, however, if you put a fraction of that faith and confidence in the Word of God and His Son, you could find the real remedy for most of the problems of your mind and emotions. We want to find, I think the problem is that we want to, uh, if, only, if only my sins weren't really my fault. If only my sins were a medical condition. If only there, were a, there was a pill that could give me relief. Anything but owning my sins. But the good news is that we are to come to Jesus as we are and trust him and we shall be forgiven all of our trespasses in an instant by our loving, waiting Father. Acts 13, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. John 3:36. he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. The measure of God's forgiveness isn't even the strength of your faith. How much faith does it take? I'm reminded of an illustration of a man on a barn, early 1900s. He's made some wings. He's on top of a tall barn and gathered his friends to watch as he gets near the peak of the barn and is going to take a leap. This man has great faith. It's going to end in disaster. Fast forward, a little old lady 2024, trembling as she walks up to get on a big plane. And she sits down and she buckles her seatbelt. She says to the person next to her, I don't think this can fly. She has her doubts. But she buckles, they take off, and she flies. Who had the greatest faith? The man on the barn of the lady on the plane. It's not how much faith, it's what you have faith in that matters. A little faith in a faithful God 
a little God in faithful wings, and you'll fly. A lot of faith in an unfaithful God, and you'll die. You're to come and trust in what Jesus did when he gave his life for sinners. Then your pardon shall be measured out to you, not according to the greatness and strength of your faith and confidence, but according to the measure of the riches of his grace. It's not your faith, it's not your tears, it's not your bitter regrets or your sin or your conception of God's goodness or your character. It is only the forgiveness which is granted from the Lord according to the riches of his grace. This is the measure or value of forgiveness. Then there's the manner of forgiveness is also according to the riches of his grace. First, we see its absolute freeness. It's according to the riches of his free favor. That's what grace is. For God, God forgives no one because of payment made by them in any form. If we could bring him a ton of gold and silver, they would be worth nothing to him. And if we bring him rivers of tears or mountains of resolves or vows or promises, they amount to nothing more than a bribe. You cannot make up for your sins. If... Um, Forgiveness, like love, cannot be purchased by us. God's pardons are absolutely free, and he forgives because he chooses to forgive out of sheer pity to the sinner and out of true compassion, but with no adulteration of anything like a bribe or a price. You ask most people about whether they're right with God. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. Why? Because they're comparing themselves to what they perceive to be a lot of other people who are worse. But that's not the standard. He requires no payment, no crawling on broken glass, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness is absolutely free, and since it comes freely, why shouldn't you come to it? It's given according to the riches of his grace. And when you and I give money to the poor, we must look to see how much is left in our account. Can I afford this? But those who have great riches can give and not worry about it. Even so, God, when he grants forgiveness, it's according to the riches of his grace, and he never has to think about whether he'll have any grace left. He'll be none the richer if he withholds it, and none the poorer if he bestows it. In this, God is a liberal. You don't have to extract forgiveness from a closed fist. God is more pleased to pardon and we are to be pardoned. And the prodigal son laid his head on his father's chest. And his father kissed him. I ask you a question. Who had the most joy? The prodigal son or the father? The father's son... Or the prodigal son must have overflowed with gladness, but the father's heart was more filled with delight when he said, This is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. It was the father who called for music and dancing and who killed the fatted calf. 
it is more trouble for you to ask for mercy than for God to give it to you according to the riches of his grace. The person who is forgiven by the Lord is not half forgiven, but completely absolved. When Jesus died for his people, he didn't make atonement for half their sins, but for all of them. And when he said from the cross, it is finished, all the sins of God's people were wiped off the books. Therefore, his salvation is complete, and those who have it are altogether delivered from the ruin which sin produces. The blood of Jesus makes us whiter than snow, and absolute innocence cannot be more white than that. For God to pardon and then afterward to condemn would be would not be according to the riches of his grace. If a governor were to issue a free pardon to a criminal and then afterward hang him, it would not be according to the riches of his favor. There is, therefore, now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We may come to Christ as freely today as we did 30 years ago and find ourselves washed white again. We may come again with all the accumulated wanderings and failings of our past years or even this past week. And believing just as we did at first, we shall find ourselves again set free and experience that first joy. And finally... The manifestation of this pardon, here we see that forgiveness of sin comes to us entirely through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if we go to Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes upon his atoning sacrifice, we will have pardon by virtue of his blood. Christ is priest enough for us. He bore our sins and he paid the price for us. In him, verse 7 says, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. We go to Christ himself, the one mediator between God and man. The text says we have it. And I want to stress that for just a minute. We have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. We have it. As many as believe in Christ are pardoned. There's all the difference in the world between a believer and an unbeliever. So, just a final note, do we still confess our sins daily? Yes, daily as you commit them, but not under the cloud of judgment as you were before you were an unpardoned criminal. You are now a beloved child. Confess your sins with the certainty that you're forgiven in Christ. Do not act toward God as if he's still upset with you. He smiles. Don't pray to him as if you dread him. He can't smite you because he has already smitten Christ. Your debt has been paid. It can never be demanded of you. Christ nailed your debt to his cross in the face of heaven, earth, and hell. And you, Christian, can rest in that perfect peace. Forgiveness, according to the riches of his grace, is yours now and forever. Let's pray. O Lord, you are the giver and we are the receivers of the gift of your great grace in Jesus Christ. We bring nothing but our sins. By the sacrifice of your Son, we are redeemed. 
All the measure and value of the forgiveness comes from who you are, and the manner of its bestowal is according to your free favor. Your mercy is manifested through your beloved Son, and for him we are eternally grateful. Help us to learn to forgive others, even as you have forgiven us in Christ. Amen. This table is the picture of the riches of God's grace. He gave the most valuable thing in order to remove our sins, which removed the enmity between us and him, so that we might sit in peace and communion with him. This is a table, therefore, of thanksgiving. The Bible connects the forgiveness of sin with communion. And the fruit of thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let us come and give thanks. Father, thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, for indeed bringing us into the kingdom of the Son of your love, and making us your children. Thank you today for the promise of the forgiveness of sins rooted in the richness of your grace. Lord, help us now to go forth and live accordingly, to do so with delight, and to rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.